I'm Lavetta. Hi, I'm Miriam. And this is Notorious Women Podcast. A comedy podcast. About some of history's most notorious most women. Notorious women. <laughs> Not bad. Over the phone. I know. Yeah, we did. Mm-hmm. There's this there's this weird um uh, there's always a weird there's a slight delay over the phone. Um, yes. that I was just watching Anderson Cooper <laughs> on <laughs> on um online and this guy is in Japan because you know they have the the uh more cases of Americans being infected who are on this cruise ship in yes. Yokohama. And, and they're stuck the guy there, was, right? Yeah, and the guy was talking, and it's just so weird, you know, because Anderson's in the studio, and he's talking, and then the guy has to wait sort of like five seconds, and then he like, and then he answers, and so it's kind of like that whenever we do over Is the that phone, a, but. That's what we sound yeah. like. Uh, a little bit. Um, so, uh, but, you know, so this week, I was thinking, I think I was on Twitter or something, because I think I'm first this week. Um and I, yeah, I'm first this week. And so this okay. week I was thinking about doing someone, and and someone, I think one of our patrons or one of our listeners has suggested this a while ago. Uh, but then I was on Twitter randomly, I think a couple of days ago, and I was like, oh, that'd be interesting. Uh, so okay. my notorious woman this week is Amy Euphemia Jacques Garvey. Okay. But Jacques um, might be Jacques. <laughs> I think it might be Jacques. Probably Jacques. Jacques. Okay. So um, she is not the first, but the second wife of Marcus Garvey. I knew it. I mean, because you said Garvey as the last name. And I'm just, yeah. you know, I went to school. So that's why I knew <laughs> it. That's it. Now, I... I could have easily have done his first wife because they both okay. are really, really interesting. Um, okay. So, yeah. Okay, so let me get into it. So, Amy Euphemia uh, Jacques was born on December 31st, 1895 in Kingston, Jamaica. Okay. George Samuel. I, I won't do that accent again. <laughs> Kingston. Uh, to George Samuel, a dark-skinned black man, and Charlotte Henrietta Jacques, a mixed-race woman. Um, Now, she grew up in a middle-class home, um, and she was taught piano and took courses in music appreciation um, because music appreciation and music were believed to be considered, uh, quote, the cultural finishings to a girl's education. Okay. So... She, as long as it's class, not for any class. sort of pleasure, interest, good. I know. But, you know, she is a black girl, and she's being – it's a very British way because uh, Jamaica is right. was a British colony. Um, right. Now, just to keep in context, she was so – as a middle-class black girl, she yeah. was uh, part of – uh, at the time that she was born, again, this is 1895 she was born, um, she, less than 2% of the youth in Jamaica attended high school. Wow. So, which she went on to do. So, let that sink in. That is 2%. That, 
that's crazy. I mean, I guess they went to work. Yeah, they went to work or, you know, because also in the Caribbean, um, I know it used to be this way, but, you know, you have to pay for uh, school fees. You know, that's one of the reasons that a lot of times immigrants are like, you Americans have it so great, you have free education. But I'm like, well, it depends on where you go to school Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the United States because – I mean – Depends on the state. Right. Uh, in theory, we have it great. You yeah. know, like, but theoretically, practice, they're right. But, like, in practice, it's a terrible education in a lot of places. Yeah. And it's actually gotten worse since we were growing up. Like, I actually think we had it yeah. much better. Because I think about, you know, growing up in Florida. And in Florida, the way it worked was um, if you were a, a minority student, a non-white student, you yeah. could – you could go to a school that wasn't in – If I, I hope I'm saying this correctly. You could go to a school, a high school that wasn't in your um, your school district because they want to make the schools more diverse, right? Because yeah, that works. Apply, you have to go through this process. Um, but I think that's because Florida, like a lot of places in the South, didn't desegregate the way they were supposed to. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that makes sense. Yeah. And also, a lot of people, yeah. if you're new to the country, if you don't speak the language, you might not know to do that, and you might not be right. able to fill out all the paperwork properly and all that. Right. Um, right. And so it's a clever way of getting around it. But I still think and I had Florida. it better than my mother because, again, this is the 90s. So yeah. Florida's supposed to – the South was supposed to be desegregating their schools in the 60s, okay? What? So, what were um, they supposed to do? The schools were so even by uh, the seventies and uh, probably early eighties, they still were resistant to. So I think by the time I came along, they had this, and actually it wasn't really highly publicized. But because I had such great counselors who thought I was such a bright child, and they informed my mother of the rule. So, but it's, it's in America because America is so large. It depends on the state you're in. So if you're oh, in a totally. state that has better education or better access to school, I mean, I think in general our schools. I, I don't know. It's so funny because I went to school in upstate New York, and I remember a lot of the kids from New York would be like, "Oh, you went to public school, or you went to like, um, uh, what is it? What is LaGuardia and uh, oh, like a magnet, a magnet school, a magnet school." But mm-hmm. in Florida, the public schools, at least in Orlando, were pretty good. But in New York, they sucked. Yeah. No, that's so. what it is. In L.A., it's the same thing. There's a lot of yeah. magnet schools or there's charter schools. There are also yeah. some good schools, but, yeah. And, like, I mean, the idea, of a, the idea of America is that public schools should be, you know, decent education mm-hmm. like you should be able to get a decent a, education a way to and go to a public educate. school yeah right that's what they should that i that's that's the theory in it but it has not been i'm happy way. to pay for that um, you know i'm happy for my taxes to go to that then girl, say, i like, think most people would be because if you educate your population then you don't have a lot of crime and like it just makes everybody's mm-hmm. life a whole lot easier and maybe we people could, have access we, we ultimately spend less on like jails yeah, because but now that because they're not committing crimes because they have you know but now oh yeah but they're privatizing the jails so that's true yeah so so uh, uh. so despite all of that so just I just wanted it's to give that's our worse. listeners I know. that in 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 like two percent of youth in Jamaica at the time went to high school 
So okay. she was very so privileged. So now her political um, beliefs were derived uh, from her father. He urged her to read periodicals and newspapers to enhance her knowledge of the world. Because, uh, okay. you know, she lived in a time that was common for most black Jamaicans to be poor and illiterate farmers. So her okay. study of history and other things outside of Jamaica sparked her curiosity about the world around her as well as the world beyond the Jamaican shores. Um, a lot of my friends, and actually my family members who are from Bermuda, which is a very lovely place to live. Yeah, wait, really you have family in Bermuda? Yeah, I have family in Bermuda. Let's and go visit them and stay with them. They hate it. They're like, oh, my God, it's so boring. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? If I lived in Bermuda, like, I would never, ever leave. Never. Ever, ever, She's, ever. like, in her bathing suit with uh, her sunglasses on, being like, what? I'm on my way to the beach, but. <laughs> but when you're from the Caribbean, because, you know, Bermuda's slightly different, because Bermuda was uh, settled for different reasons as, like, a vacation you know, colony. But oh. um, but in a lot of the Caribbean, um, there's a lot there's not a lot to do, and there's a lot of poverty, and because of <clears throat> colonialism, um, and what there, colonialism, um, <laughs> and there aren't a lot of opportunities unless you're already connected in a family. But she was in that family, yes. so yes, um, yes. but also beyond that, a lot of my Caribbean friends tell me that it's so boring living on a small island. I mean, you know, I get so that's that. why, you know, I get it. We get it living in our state. You want to go to another state within the United States because you want to, you know, you get out. That's why I left Florida. I'm like, bye, bitches. You know, I was like, I'm going to New York. <laughs> um, and so, so, but, so this is what she was going through. This is what Amy was going through. Now, um, now, even though her father urged her to, you know, learn more of the world and educate herself, and become politically aware, he still reinforced the ideas of society when it came to gender roles. Ah, okay. typical Caribbean ah. man, Caribbean father. I mean, <laughs> I shouldn't say that, but um, ah. typical father for then. Because remember, she was born in 1895. So, yeah. um, but he was like, he so was she was both. Here's a taste of knowledge. Also, take that knowledge and raise a family, and that's it. Okay. And he probably was like, aren't I a great guy, you know? Yeah, uh, he probably was real. better than most. So I'll give him Actually, that. Actually, um, he's trying to educate her and have her think for herself. That's different. Yeah. Uh, but so he allowed her to take shorthand classes later in life, but only because he wished for her to become a nurse. Like that's a great, okay. you know, um, job for a woman, a young woman. It's a respectable job. Um, but upon, upon graduating from school and receiving some of the highest honors of the time, Amy was re- recruited to work at a law firm. Her Ooh, father yeah. said no. He's like, no. Well. Because, get this, he refused to allow his daughter to work in an environment with men. Okay, what? Here's what I will say. If you are a nurse, not only are you uh-huh. with men, you are seeing parts to, of men perhaps you would yeah. not see in a law firm. Yeah. That is I don't think Daddy thought that. No, I don't think he thought it through. No, no. I think he probably thought being a nurse is like just taking temperatures and all the nice things mm-hmm. that you see on television, but it's like no How way. are we feeling um, today? Okay, bye. Yeah. So he, but unfortunately he died later that year. Because first he was like, no, oh. no way. But he died later that year. 
uh, and the lawyer uh, proceeding over his estate urged her mother to allow her to work in the clerical office so that she could uh, learn how to take control of the estate. Okay. Which I thought was interesting. So her mother agreed, and Amy worked in the law firm for four years, ultimately gaining knowledge, uh, more knowledge of laws and the legal system. So she's a young woman doing it for herself. Uh, Now, after four years of working for the law firm, um, she was plagued by ill health. You hear that sometimes people in the Caribbean or in, like, damp places, like, have to go in uh, better uh, environments or something. So um, she was in need of a cooler climate, uh, the doctors told her. So in 1917, she moved to Harlem. Okay. So she was 22 at the time. I know. Well, I think it must have been exciting. Oh, my God, because she's right there during the yeah. Harlem, uh, when the Harlem Renaissance is just getting started, actually. Madam C.J. Walker is there in, like, 1918, 1919. I bet she was very exciting. Um, oh, I know. Also, just, like, side note, isn't this a little bit like Hamilton? Except, like, oh, yeah, not, obviously, exactly. at all. But, right? Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's exciting. It's you know, I bet. And she had been reading about these places and, you know what I mean? And so yeah, she, she knew, now probably she, knew a lot about it. Yeah, I wonder if she was plagued by ill health. I wonder. Hmm. Mm. <laughs> I was plagued by ill health when I was graduating college and just had to move to New York City as well. <laughs> <laughs> now, she promised her mother and her employer that she would return in three months if the conditions oh. um, in the U.S. were not suitable to her. But ultimately, she wouldn't return for many years. Okay. So... Uh, now, her initial interest in the U.S. has started as a child reading about it, um, and she allegedly uh, justified also her trip to America in particular because she could have gone to England. She could have gone any other place, you know, um, mm. uh, by arguing that her father had actually sparked this interest in her, and that, and she told her mother that she just wished to see, quote, the land of opportunity and its limitations. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So now in Harlem, uh, in the U.S., uh, she was introduced uh, to Garveyism. Now, Garveyism, for our listeners who don't know, is an aspect of black nationalism founded by Marcus Garvey. Now, Marcus Garvey Mm -hmm. is from Jamaica originally, but he had moved, immigrated to the U.S., uh, and it was founded by Marcus Garvey, and it centered uh, Garveyism centered on the unification and empowerment of African-American men, women, and children under the banner of their collective African descent and the repatriation of African slave descendants and profits to the African continent. So basically, Marcus Garvey is like, we black people, we got to stick together and we got to get reparations. Yeah. No, he's not wrong. Uh, I mean, he's absolutely right. You yep. can't, like, the argument that he's wrong is not, like, a good one. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. It's like, no, no, no. Um, Suck it up? Now, no, that's not an argument. And also, keeping, uh, just for context, so, in the Civil War happened, 1865, um, black people had about 35 years where it looked like, oh, you know, whoever wanted to contribute to American society, go into politics, start businesses, mm-hmm. like, that was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Jim Crow, the rise of Jim Crow. Yeah. And I feel like, also, I feel like we, don't, we don't, like, accept in our country enough the damage Jim Crow did. Without the Jim Crow laws, 
we would be we so ahead. Because we were getting code, there. We wouldn't have a racism problem. You know, they're always like, people, racists who are like, like, you're always talking about racism. It's like, no, we're tired of talking about it. Mm -mm. Trust us. Um, Yeah. We're tired of dealing with it. So as tired as you are hearing about it, we're even more tired of living it. Trust us. And so. I mean. Effie, you know, actually, a lot of people don't know this, but Lincoln, um, Lincoln wasn't like, oh, black people equal, da, 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 but thank God it doesn't matter. He freed slaves. But Lincoln was yeah, like, oh, you know. we have to give them land and a way to mm-hmm. start their lives. So that's where the 40 acres and a mule idea came yes. from. Because then you have to give them. people an economic yeah. base. Yeah. Right? So, which is, which uh, was right. And would have been ultimately better for the finances of our country. Because you can bet that there are lots of newly free slaves that were happy to work hard to make their own money and contribute back to society. Oh, yeah. If that had happened, and that's why Tagli's production company is 40 Acres and a Mule. If that had happened, oh, my God, we would be, as a nation, would be unstoppable. We would be so prosperous. We wouldn't be arguing. Um, Yeah. We wouldn't be having these issues that we're having because, I really believe, and not just because I'm a black person, but this whole uh, racism and, and you know, it, it's really a distraction and it's really um, a, a, an emotional and financial uh, resource sucker. <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's a burden. And it, it's a burden to all of us. Honestly, like, I feel like we're losing our level of superpower, and that's a huge reason. Oh, yeah. Well, we would we would on. really be a superpower. We would be we would have a lot but we 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 don't because we can't stop fighting. We yeah, can't stop hating, like, I think is the better word. Well which is why that after slavery when there was no black revolt or whatever, um none of the violence that the former um mm-hmm. slave masters thought was gonna happen or white people, none of that, you know, but the idea, so that's why they couldn't even stand that, even though nothing happened. So that's why when they introduced Jim Crow and sharecropping, which is another form of slavery, it's that felt slavery. better to them than the unknown. So, um, but that's what Garvey, Marcus Garvey was all about. And Marcus Garvey was like, you know, he was, he was one of the first people that was sort of like, you know, representation matters. So he was like uh-huh. dressing these elaborate, like, outfits. And, and be driven around in this fancy car to show the disenfranchised black people, not just here, but in the, on the African continent and throughout the di- diaspora and South, A- South Africa, I mean, in South America, and, you know, all throughout the colonies, the Caribbean colonies. And yeah. he was the first one to understand. Like, when you see pictures of him, you're like, this, this dude was doing this in, like, 1918? He's, like, in, like, these, I don't know, these medals were real, but he looks like a, like a general. He has, like, this fancy hat and fancy outfits on. And, like, so, yeah. So that's what his belief was. So when Amy came to Harlem, the hotbed of all of this, she was like, oh, my God, this is fantastic. So after attending he one was, of his conferences, was ready Marcus Garvis, yes. she was ready. Now, she became his private secretary and worked with him at the universe. So the name of his, his association was the Universal Negro Improvement Association, or the UNIA. Okay. Now, at the time, Marcus was already married to another Amy by the name of okay. Amy oh, Ashwood. 
yes. she liked Amy. Okay. Who was reportedly friends with Amy Euphemia when they were girls huh? back in Jamaica. Oh, wow. This is complicated. Scandalous, girl. Scandalous. Indeed. I was like, oh, Amy, girl, no. You were girl. trouble, Amy, girl. That, that um, he's not yours. You're in danger, Amy. Mm. So now <laughs> there's some contradictions in detail surrounding their courtship. So many historians are confused about whether or not the two were having an affair. On one hand, Marcus's first wife, Amy Ashwood, claimed that she and Garvey, that the Amy Euphemia, were seeing each other behind her back. Amy okay. said that basically, and, and to make matters worse, Amy Euphemia, Our Lady, this this week was in the wedding of Amy Ashwood to Marcus. Oh, wow. Oh, man. That's some reality so, TV right there. Yeah. Um, so his first wife was like, yeah, them, them fools are fooling around behind my back. And But our Amy and Marcus were like, no, we didn't get together until um, after the divorce or after they separated. Mm-hmm. Now, um, and they just said that they had mutual respect for each other. Okay. Now, the first wife, first Amy, Amy Ashwood, says that she left Marcus in the summer of 1921 after she discovered that he and Amy Jacques were living together. Because he was traveling a lot Ooh. around. Um, How but, long was this going on? Well, so she moved there years? in nineteen. Uh, so she moved there in nineteen uh, seventeen. Seventeen. So yeah. twenty-one. If she discovers so that was three years. Uh, okay. Oh no, four years. So um, I mean, knowing human beings the way I know them, they probably were fooling around. <laughs> um, they were. They probably. You know. Had. Or, you know, he and her, he and his first wife were having normal husband and wife things, and this other woman is on the side just waiting to, to slide in there and be like, mm-hmm. oh, poor thing, you can cry on my shoulder. Who knows? Oh, I right? know. It She's is terrible. <laughs> yes. Yes. Now, um, so in, uh, so Marcus divorced Amy Ashwood while she was abroad in England in June of 1922. Wait, and he had yeah. She leaves, and then he divorces her. So she left yeah. him because in twenty one, in uh, summer twenty one, because okay. she discovered that he and her and her friend Amy were seeing right. her behind her back. So they divorced, or no, they separated. Okay. You know, she's probably like, they, "Fuck okay. you, bitch! I'm, I'm gone, right?" I know. So yeah, I get that. She goes to England. Now, yeah. all of his wives. This man has great taste in women because. Both of his wives are like badass women. Like they are for the movement, they're for the cause, they're they're like, you know, activists. They are always doing their thing. And that's probably what Amy Ashwood was doing in England. So she goes over to okay. England and so in June of nineteen twenty two, so while she's gone, because remember travel was a lot more like longer, yeah. it took you longer to get to places. Um Marcus Files for divorce in Kansas City without her knowledge. He didn't even tell her. Oh my God. Wow. And then married our Amy, Amy Euphemia, the, a month later in July, on July 27th, 1922. He and Amy Euphemia Jacques married in Baltimore. Wow. Yeah. So I feel like the laws now require both sides to sign the papers yeah. before they're legal. 
but maybe not then. Because, wow. I mean, maybe he, I mean, maybe he and Amy, um, our Amy, were not fooling around, but that's a dick move, Marcus. That's a dick that's move. A, that's a super dick move. It makes me wonder, makes me think maybe they weren't fooling around because he was very, like, quickly desperate to marry her. Do you know what I mean? Okay. Men usually do that when they want to have sex, as, as far as I know. You know. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a very good point. I don't know. But on our Amy's part, that's a big move on her part, too, because she grew up with this other Amy. And right? that's a little, I mean, mm. that would gross me out. I'd be like, mm, I'm kissing There's my friend's man. There's a girl code breaking. Oh. Yeah, no, that's not cool. Yeah. I don't know that you and also date, they, you know? Like, what makes Mark is also a dick is that he accused Amy Ashwood of infidelity, theft, alcoholism, and laziness. <laughs> Girl, where's your pe? I mean, like, dude, where's your penis right now? Okay, so stop. Well, now some historians say that both of them were being unfaithful. You know, it's marriage. probably like not the greatest marriage. <laughs> yeah, so maybe it's, it's for the, the best. So yeah. Now, but Amy was pissed because it's also her good friend, childhood friend that he's marrying. I, so she yeah, reportedly. No, never really accepted the divorce. And she attempted to challenge the validity of the second marriage. Um, I, I feel like she, she's onto something. Yeah. <laughs> and to the end of her day, she always said that she was the real Mrs. Garvey. Okay. So, um, so yeah, her attempts to nullify the marriage, the new marriage failed. Um, and, um, you know, but what's so sad about it, like one historian pointed out, and it's true, unfortunately, the whole debacle ultimately also led to the end of a marriage, but also the end of a long-term and a long-time childhood friendship. Yeah, that's it. Um, now, don't feel bad for Amy Ashwood, his first wife, because she went on with her life, and she became a pan-Africanist politician, cultural feminist, and feminist in the U.S., Jamaica, and England. So, and like she, her. Wow, don't feel bad for Amy Ashwood. She went on. With her life, and she was she was doing her thing. So that's why I was like, oh, I could have done her too. Like these women were like, oh, awesome. <laughs> they were like, yeah. Now at the beginning of our Amy, so back to Amy Euphemia Jacques. At the beginning of her marriage to Marcus, she believed that her responsibility should be that of uh, to comfort her husband. So, and it could have been that the first Amy was more independent, and so the new Amy is like, oh, I'll be that you know dutiful wife, and da 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 da, and he's like, yeah, woman, yeah. Um, so <laughs> men enjoy that. It's true. They love that, especially back then. Mm. Now, several months after they got <laughs> married, um, she began editing volume one of the philosophy and opinions of Marcus Garvey, a compilation of Marcus's writings and speeches. Her initial purpose in editing this journal was to provide a means for the general public to form their own opinion about Marcus Garvey and without the stigma provided by biased sources of the time. So okay. you can only imagine what the racist uh, media was saying about Marcus Garvey, this man yeah. driving around in, like, a fancy car, like, these, like, very ostentatious, like, outfits, you know, saying it's black the, people need reparations. The, the, not, the not racist racist would be like, I mean, it's fine for them to be equal, but not like this. This is what... Right. This is what the, the quote-unquote good white people say. Like, I mean, can you yeah. just be quiet about it, you know? And it's like, actually, no. 
And also because you, you don't can. really know what his beliefs are. Like now we can go online and we go to Wikipedia, we can go to Twitter and follow people. But back then you got all your stuff from newspapers, right? So, um, yeah. So she sought to write a clear, concise uh, journal of what exactly the beliefs and um, the the um, uh, the goals of the organization were. I mean, it's Which basically his blog, right? It's his yeah. blog of back then. It's manifesto, right, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, because manifesto usually has a weird, creepy connotation, but like you said, blog. Um, yeah. His writing. <laughs> so now she, so Amy's place in both the movement and the organization soon shifted. Instead of taking a back seat, like he thought she initially would do, uh, and working in the shadows to strengthen his platform, she became the face of the UNIA and a representation of the females of the organization, a role, honestly, that the first Amy, wife Amy, had done. Oh, wow. So, um, in her That's book, awkward. Garvey, I know, in, uh, in her book, Garvey and Garveyism, Amy, our Amy, alleges that a significant amount of Garvey's speeches, uh, of Marcus's speeches, were a direct result of her own work whether it be the crafting of specific lines or the re- research that went into it. In this book, she describes how Marcus implored her to read through front-page articles and other prominent news sources and explain their importance to him. After gathering the information he needed, he would then use it for his own speeches. So this is exactly what wives have been doing since the beginning mm-hmm. of time. Yeah. Right? But what is it behind um, every good man is a great woman? Yeah. This man, that he doesn't has make great us feel better, you guys. No, it doesn't. <laughs> because in a, in a perfect world, she would have her own ideas out there being the face right. of it, like the actual face of it. Now, um, she, now Amy, to make matters worse for Marcus, who was like, I married a woman who cooks me dinner and helps me with my speeches. Um, mm. She, Amy was said to also have been an excellent speaker having toured the country with and without him. Now, nice. after making a return, yeah, from one uh, from from their Western tour, Marcus was scheduled to speak in New York, and Amy was not a part of the program. So one, so, you know, because by this time, people were used to seeing them together, right? And she right. probably would come yeah. up and appeal to the women and, you know, get them all riled up. And, and we know women really do control everything. I wish they all knew. I wish all of us knew that we did that because we really control everything. Um, we kind of do. One has, yeah. We do. So now they're back in New York, and Amy's not on the program with him. So one historian alleges that the audience was so inspired by her previous speech and published works that when Marcus went up to speak, the crowd chanted, quote, we want Mrs. Garvey. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> That's awesome. Can you imagine how pissed he was? Just, oh, like, my God. You know, you mean the black man, black Jamaican man is like, I'm the man, I'm the head, I'm the head lion. Um, <laughs> even though she was not scheduled to speak at the event, she was allowed because of the mass outcry by the crowd. Marcus was said to have taken to the podium and said that he was grateful that his wife was his wife and not his rival. Mm. Oh. So, um, one, um, yeah. And now, now this man has a great wife. He's lucked out on two great wives, it seems. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, many historians believe that he failed, Marcus himself, big surprise here, 
to show his wife any appreciation, despite her growing fame in the public forum, because he was threatened by it, obviously. That, that feels right. That feels right. Yeah. 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 Now, in her book uh, about Amy, author Karen Adler writes, quote, he expected self-sacrificing behavior from his wife and perhaps was threatened by her rival status rendering him unable to acknowledge her capabilities and accomplishments, end quote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, why don't now, you marry someone less intelligent and interesting? You can do that. See, there's a dilemma with a man like him, right? Because he mm-hmm. is who he is, so he's attracted to strong, intelligent women, but he wants them to behave like they're not strong, intelligent women when he wants them not to be strong, intelligent women. Right. Can't have your cake and eat it too, dude. Sorry. So I'm sorry. now I'm not sorry at all. But Amy was, you know, she had a strong belief that her position as his, as his wife was to support him and the structure of the organization. So she took a back seat willingly, you know, as many as uh, uh, many other women in the UNIL and other yeah. black movements, and you know, um, even that though the UNIA. That makes me so sad. Yeah. Yeah, I know, because we haven't been doing this since the beginning of the time. You know, even mm-hmm. though they presented itself as an equal rights organization, many of the women did complain, though, that they felt they were given unfair positions. The grievances were made public, yes. actually, in 1922 at the UNIA's National Convention. Uh, sexism found a way to thrive, even in the spite of the UNIA's, you know, public commitment to sexual equality. And that's probably what attracted a lot of women to the to the cause to begin with, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, you think, oh, we're all in this together, but then it's kind of like, it reminds me of like, um, you know, Jim Jones is terrible. For some reason, it creeps me out all the time. Jim Jones is a terrible uh, cult leader who killed all those people with the Kool-Aid. Oh, God, um, yeah. Yeah. And so they, a lot of black people died in that thing because a lot of black people were attracted to his, his message of equality and, and yeah. that died a lot of, you know, and that's how he garnered a lot of success in black community. But then they said that within the organization, none of the leadership roles were occupied by black people. You know, and that was one of the reasons towards the end a lot of people started leaving because they were like, oh, this is just a lot of talk. Yeah. And it's mm-hmm. not really in practice, right? Um, so, yeah. Um, now, on June 21st, 1923, less than a year after marrying her, um, Marcus Garvey was actually found guilty of mail fraud and was sent to Toombs Prison in upstate New York, where he spent Whoa. three months before being released on a bond. Now, I've heard about this. I don't know how. I think this was a way for the, you know, racists to get around to stopping him. You know, because mail fraud is one of those yeah. things where, you know, if you like send a mail leaflet fraud? in the mail, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't feel like that's a real I don't know this. I, I will say I don't know the specifics of this because I don't really care about Marcus Garvey in this. We're this not talking about him. Women. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm talking about Amy, uh, his wife. So, so what does she do? We're centering <laughs> her. So I didn't really get into that. Like, you know, I only clicked on his page when I need to get information about his wife. Like, I don't really care about Marcus Garvey. Yeah, it's fine. Marcus Marcus will be okay. Odds are not good. It was a legit arrest. We could just go with that. 
and moving yeah, on. So male fraud seems yeah. a bit weak, but, you know, I can mm-hmm. imagine how dangerous they thought he was. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, now, while he was uh, in Coombs prison awaiting appeals, um, he failed to win some of his appeals and, as a direct result, was sentenced actually on February 8, 1925, to five years in Atlanta Whoa. Federal Penitentiary. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. So at this time, Amy had to assume leadership of the UNIA. So in addition to speaking all over the country to raise money, because now they don't even have an income, so she has to do whatever she can to raise money for his defense fund and also figure out a way to make a living, you know, take care of herself. Uh, So she spoke all over the country raising money. She edited and published volume two of the philosophy and opinions of Marcus Garvey, two volumes okay. of his poetry, The Tragedy of White Injustice and Selections from the Poetic Meditations of Marcus Garvey. While doing this, she worked tirelessly with lawyers to get her husband out of jail. She kept the UNIA moving forward by delivering speeches and meeting with the leadership of the group occasionally. Uh, despite the okay. effort that she put into keeping Marcus's dream alive, so she's Marcus's Coretta, you know, MLK, Coretta. I mean, we wouldn't have that MLK Day just... without Coretta Scott King. No, we couldn't, and I remind my children of that every year. Yeah. So, <laughs> so um, uh, the author, um, uh, Adler, alleges that Marcus never, again, never showed any appreciation toward his wife. Because it's like, yeah, you're my wife. You're supposed to do this. You're supposed to work tirelessly I'm... on my behalf. No, she could um, do what she wants. And wow. even though... Amy's doing all of this. She never assumes official leadership of the organization because Marcus would not allow it, even though he in jail. See, I couldn't be his wife because I'd be like, listen here. No. Listen here, man. Listen here, black man. This is how it's going to go down. And when you get out, we can do whatever we got to do to figure this out. But I am in control. You are not. So, yeah. Or I would be like, yeah. here's the deal. You're in jail. I'm getting nothing yeah. from you. So you want this? You got it. I'm going to start my own thing because you know what they were chanting for? Me. They were chanting yeah. for me. So you have fun in jail. <laughs> Good luck. She, okay. she loved him. And I never understood people are like, people, it, it, you know what it's like? It's like, being, it's like being nasty to your server at a restaurant. Right. They have all the you power. Say, you don't. <laughs> look, you must be nice. How are you? Thank you so much. You refilled my soda. Here's yeah. a normal size tip, if not a little extra. Right? Yeah. Just don't just be, like, I, I told mean, you to fill the soda. That's your job. Do it. Yeah, right. You don't yell at the the, the, uh, the help, but, you know, sexism. Men, men are not really yeah. sexy. Now, he, so he was in um, jail, and then he was deported in 1927. Oh, my God. So he was sentenced in 25, but in 1927, they deported. They were trying to get rid of it. It's, yeah, like, yeah. I don't even have to read the specifics of this. So, no. you know, and he doesn't yeah, have to we be got that. an angel. It's like, yeah, they try to get rid of him. They're like, Negro, go back to Jamaica. So, um, so he was deported in 1927, so she went back to be with him. So that's when she went back to Jamaica. Yeah. Why am I disappointed? I know. I know. But she was a dutiful wife, you know. I have the feeling, Mm -hmm. um, you know. And also it's their home. I'm sure she missed her mom and, you know, her home country. So uh, because Jamaica's beautiful. 
And yeah, so um, now they had two sons, ultimately, Marcus Mosiah Garvey Jr., born in 1930, so three years after they okay. went back to Jamaica, and Julius Winston Garvey, born in 1933. Now, she, so they're back in, in Jamaica in uh, 27. So as you can imagine, like, his Garveyism has spread throughout the African diaspora, and for those of you who don't know, when I say African diaspora, everywhere there's black people <laughs> who were brought there by the African slave trade. So in South yeah. America, the Caribbean, so in, in America, North, everywhere. North America. Yeah. So that's what more, we say more diaspora. More places than we realize, yeah. Yeah. Um, so when we say African diaspora, that's what we mean. So Garveyism has spread throughout the diaspora. And so when he went back to Jamaica, they raised a bunch of money to give him so he could get settled in Jamaica. And, you know, and he was still, but it was hard because he was still trying to do the same work he was doing in the U.S. And so as much as we, we, um, talk shit about our country, which is our right as Americans, there is a lot you can get done being here. You have access yeah. to information. You have access to um, uh, forms of dissemination of, of information, like, you know, um, access to newspapers, media that you don't have in places like Jamaica even now. Right? I mean, now the Internet has changed a lot of things, which is great. Um, but yeah, true. So he, he struggled to keep his, his movement alive, right? So he actually went to England in 1934. So after the birth of their second child, um, and he went to England. Now, I found it interesting. This is interesting. His first wife, Amy, was in England with her new man or her new second man at the same Mm -hmm. time. So they did meet up at least once, if not more. than Because she was doing her own version of pan-Africanism. Like, um, she had basically created, taking basically what Garveyism was, but in England with black people there who were a lot of times from the Caribbean and like, so the first Amy was doing her thing also in England. So, which I wonder is our Amy, when she realized that that Amy was there to make it a small place. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I'm sure she knows like one month. She probably was like, Oh shit. But it's like, well, I don't know. Amy. I mean, Amy, you know what called. you did. So, mm-hmm. you you broke it first. Now, yeah. So, now, Marcus eventually died in 1940. So, he died oh. six years after going to England. And Amy, Wait, like did he many, stay many in women, England? He stayed, Wait, in, he England, stayed in England. So, he went he to England. The kids followed him. The kids okay. followed uh, Amy and the children followed him for a short time. But England is uh, – I love England, but England is a very different climate than Jamaica. Um, yeah. And it, and I bet you it was even more lonely because at least in America you have a lot more black people than you do yeah. in England. Uh, so I still imagine it was even tougher there. And so she – so they went to England for a while, but then she – he went on one of his many – because also remember, he probably was gone a lot. Like many of these yeah. guys, like, you know, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, you know, Fred Hampton, all of these guys were gone a lot. Yeah. And so these women were really holding down the fort. And so on one of his trips, she and the kids went back to Jamaica because that's where her family is. You know, the children need I stability. Know. 
Yep. You know, um, it's cold in England, you know, so, Mm -hmm. um, but he died in 1940. So he stayed and he died. Um, and she continued to struggle to continue his work, you know, and his, his philosophy. Uh, but she continued the struggle for black nationalism and African independence. In 1944, she wrote, quote, a a memorandum correlative smarty pants a memorandum correlative <laughs> of africa west indies and the americas uh oh. end quote which she used to convince the un un representatives to adopt an african freedom charter so this is the push for african independence on the continent also okay. because remember in the diaspora which means on the continent mm. of africa mm-hmm. colonialism all up uh, colonialism all up in the in that in that piece Right, as well as in the Caribbean, yeah. and um, America's colonization is very different because we we're outnumbered <laughs> so in America. Yeah, but um, so she, yeah, she had them adopted in 1944, which is quite um, amazing. Um, and in November, so she went on. She continued the struggle in November of 1963. So we are 23 years after his death. Um, Amy visited Nigeria as the guest of Dr. Namdi Azikewe, who was being installed as the nation's first governor general. She published her own book, Garvey and Garveyism, in 1963, as well as a booklet, Black Power in America, semicolon, The Power of the Human Spirit, um, in 1968. So the booklet, so the book came in 1963 and the booklet in 1968. She also assisted John Henri Clark in editing Marcus Garvey and the Vision of Africa, uh, published in 1974. Her final work was The Philosophy and Opinions of Marcus Garvey, Volume 3, written in conjunction with E. U. Essen Udam. Uh, now, in, 19, in 1971, she herself, all this work she's done, was awarded yeah. the Musgrave Medal, the Musgrave Medal is an annual award by the Institute of Jamaica in recognition of achievement in art, science, and literature. Um, That's amazing. Two years later, I know, two years later, 1973, so 1973, what is she? She's 78. She died in her native Kingston, oh. Jamaica, and was interred in the churchyard of St. Andrew's Parish Church. So she that is so much. I know. Amy Euphemia Jacques Garvey. Yeah. Marcus Garvey's second wife. And and his first wife is probably just as interesting. So. um, I know. I kind of want to do her now. I know, right? (laughs) So so that's my notorious woman this week. Who's your notorious woman? Thank you for her. She's awesome. Okay. My notorious woman is a totally different kind of human. You ready? Okay. I'm ready. I was like, ah, something funky. Betsy Ross. Oh, Betsy Ross, the the flag lady, right? I don't know anything the about flag her. Lady. The flag lady. Okay. So mine's short and sweet because okay. it turns out some things about Betsy Ross are not so much. <laughs> I was like, Ooh, no, Betsy, funny. no. Right? Okay. So um, actually, it was her family's fault, not hers. You'll see. She was born January first. Okay. 1752. Her father was Samuel Griscom, and her mother was Rebecca Jane Griscom um, on their farm in New Jersey. 
She was the eighth of 17 children, but only nine survived childhood. And if you look her up in Wikipedia, it will go through the deaths of all the other children that did not survive. It's very, um, just looks like painful. Um, cause, but that's how they did it back then. They just had 500 yeah. children and 212 lived. Um, yep. so they grew up as Quakers. Um, oh, there was plain okay. dress, very disciplined, and she learned to sew from her great aunt, Sarah Elizabeth M. Griscom. I guess they also had a lot of names back then. So <laughs> she went to a, a Quaker-run state school, and then her father apprenticed her to an upholsterer named William Webster. Okay. And I think it's interesting that even, like, back then in these times, there was a thought of, like, she'll need to be able to make money. You know what I mean? Oh, like, as a woman. That's true. Um, yeah. And uh turns out she will. Uh, so she met John Ross, who was the son of a rever- reverend of the Church of England, which is complicated because oh, she was a Quaker. Yeah. But they eloped in 1773. Okay. Um, <laughs> the marriage caused a split from her family, and it Aww. also meant expulsion from the Quaker congregation. But from what I read, they didn't, like, that much care. They started their own upholstery business together, and they joined Christ's church, um, where their fellow congregates occasionally included visiting colony of Virginia militia regimental commander, colonel, and soon-to-be general, George Washington and his family. Oh, okay. So they hung out in uh, fancy circles, basically. Yeah, because George uh, Washington had... was moneyed. <laughs> Yeah, he had um, some dollar bills. I mean, the first dollar bill had his face on it. There was a reason. (laughs) You see that joke? Do you like what I did there? Yeah, I love it. (laughs) I'm really proud of it, so thank you. (laughs) Um, So they had no kids. Um, And uh, That's unusual for a woman back then. Well, here's what happened. It didn't last very long. So the revolution broke out when they'd been married for two years. And he was assigned, John was assigned to guard munitions. And somehow Mm. something went wrong. Don't know what. Don't care. He's a man. He died in 1775. So she was only 24. Yeah. They were only married two years. Yeah, right? Okay. But she had a business. So she continued working in the upholstery business. She repaired uniforms. She made tents, blankets. Remember, war is, you know, some financial uh, uh, opportunity. There you go. It was a terrible thing, but it's true. Um, stuff Very paper for some tube. people. It, it really is. It was, she, she did kind of well. Um, it, she made stuffed paper tube cartridges with musket balls for prepared packaged ammunition in 1779 oh. for the Continental okay. Army. She was on the correct side. That's good. Um, there is speculation, apparently there was a whole thing, uh, that she was the beautiful young widow who distracted Carl von Donop in Mount Holly, New Jersey, after the Battle of Ironworks Hill, which kept his forces out of the crucial turning of the tide Battle of Trenton on the morning of December 26, 1776, in which Hessian or Hessian Soldiers were defeated after crossing of, after the crossing of the Delaware River. River. Well, so it's speculation 
but I like it. Right? Okay. You never I mean, know about seventeen seventy something. <laughs> right? And it's like she hung out in those circles. She was a beautiful young widow. I, I'm gonna go with it. Okay. So June right? That's embrace. Um seventeen seventy seven she married her second husband, who is a mariner, Joseph Ashburn. Okay. Uh, in seventeen eighty, she was got a lot of luck here. His ship was captured by a Royal Navy frigate, and he was charged with treason because <coughs> he was British ancestry. Now, this was before anyone was actually American. Right, right. Yeah. The so, Americans were known as the colonists. <laughs> right, of so the, there was no, like... The uh, English crown. Right, so there's no, like, I'm a naturalized citizen. Like, no, you're from here. So they, they imprisoned him at Old Mill Prison in England, and he died there. So during this time, right, their first daughter, named Zilla, died at the age of nine months. And their second daughter, Eliza, was born. That's like a bad day. That's like a really, really bad day. Yeah. I mean, I don't like, (coughs) how you start out just like, just that. (laughs) Like your husband's dead in England. Yeah. I mean, just like, like, now we have, like, psychotherapists and Xanax, you know, right. like, <laughs> what do they do back yeah. then? That's crazy. But I don't like, know why people so mean, I think. That's why it's so mean and cruel. I like, think you're right. You know, they, they didn't know how to talk about their feelings. Like, how do you feel? <laughs> they were just like, well, you had another kid. What's the problem? That's fine. Yeah. You're oh, fine. yeah, especially when it came to women. They, they definitely, they were oh like, walk God. it off. That's what being a woman is. Yeah. No credit and all the work. But you should enjoy know, it, right? Because boobs. And then they have men <laughs> call you hysterical. Because you're not getting laid properly. You know even when we're not getting mm-hmm. laid properly. You know they were not. I'll let... Yeah, that is true. So that is true. <laughs> um, they're supposed to like it. Yes, you idiot. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so three years later, May... 1783, she marries again, John Claypool. Oh, okay. And uh, John had earlier met her second husband, Joseph, in the English Old Mill prison. And he was the one who told her of her husband's, like, the, the circumstance of his death and his death. So they married. They then okay. had five daughters. Like, oh. how, like, then to go get pregnant five more times, that is just like, wow, someone give her a raise. Wow. Um, they were Clarissa, Susanna, Jane, Rachel, and Harriet. Harriet died in infancy. Like, wow. Oh. Um, but around this time, things got a little bit better. When their second daughter was born in 1786, they moved to a larger house on Philadelphia's 2nd Street. And they settled down nicely post-war. Because um, Philadelphia prospered because it was a temporary national capital of the newly independent USA. So that was nice at that moment. In 1793, her mother, her father, her sister, uh, Deborah, died uh, in another severe yellow fever epidemic. And after two oh. decades of poor health, husband number three decided to perish. So, wow. Like, 
I mean, her life, man, that's a lot of sadness. But she continued her poultry business for 10 more years. Now, the flag, right? She Mm -hmm. made the American flag. In 1870, you know, like many years later. 90 years later. (laughs) uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Her relatives credited her with making the first American flag. So most historians dismiss the story, but the the family tradition holds that General George Washington and two members of a congressional committee, George Ross and Robert Morris, visited her in 1776. And it is said that she convinced George Washington to change the shape of the stars in a sketch of a flag he showed her from a six-pointed star, P.S., that's a Jewish star, to a five-pointed star, by demonstrating that it was easier and speedier to cut the latter. That said, there's no archival evidence or other recorded verbal tradition to substantiate the story of the first American flag. And it appears that the story first surfaced in the writings of her grandson in uh, the 1870s. There's no... no Sounds like they had a better publicist. (laughs) I mean... Right, and yet in our history books, you open it to Betsy Ross. Because you, you know what probably happened. This is a cynic in me, but this is probably yeah. true. George Washington and some men, perhaps, um, you know, had this idea because they were like, oh, you know, this is, uh, you know, uh, encourage the men because it took a long time to win the Revolutionary War. It took a long time. It did. And it's like, yeah. you know, it would give them some – uh, it'll uh, rally the troops, and maybe she did give him that suggestion about the stars. But yeah. they, they sketched well, it up, and then a slave made this flag. <laughs> a slave woman I mean, made this flag. <laughs> I mean, let's just call it what it is, people. Um, I mean, you know, like, <laughs> you know, in her, in her family's mind, it's like, oh, she had this business. She knew General Washington. She said that she probably in her writing, because everybody kept a diary back then, she gave him right. this idea. Like, she gave him – basically, she gave him notes, right, on something. And so that in their mind, they're like, oh, she made the first flag. But, you know, <laughs> the actual physical work of making this flag was probably slave labor. I'm just going to keep it real. Um, I mean, so. she might have made that first flag, you know what I'm saying, or the first design, but they made many, many flags, right? Yes. Like, and that's people don't more realize. than yeah. one flag, two flags. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but 90 years later, her family's like, no, it was her. <laughs> I mean, I, I, what, I wonder, too, is like, did they find old sketches, you know, of the flag, and they're like, wait. You know, but you know, I, you know how families are. Like, families, like your grandmother will tell you something that she heard from an, a great uncle or her grandmother, and it's like it's like a, a, a game of telephone. It gets changed, right? Like, I mean, I've, I forgot to tell you something about myself, actually. Oh. So, <laughs> are you ready? Because uh-huh. according to my grandmother, it's very, very true. Okay. I am royalty. 
<laughs> I know. Oh, it, my it all makes sense now, right? My lady. No. Yes. If, if I, I mean, you might My be. grandmother's word. No, I'm Jewish. There's no way. You can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> no one ever let a Jew in anyone's royalty. Never. <laughs> You're so wrong. <laughs> we do have King but, David. Okay. And Solomon. Who? <laughs> okay. Maybe like that. But like, did we? I mean, like, what do we know about that? Someone just like write that down. Is the Bible just like oh a pipe God. dream? You know, like he was Jewish and a king, and we're like, yes, but really, like, no. <laughs> oh my God, um, so funny. But don't don't like don't ask my grandma because she'll be like, and then we were more royal. She was like, mm-hmm. She was like, you're a princess, okay. Yeah, I mean, I mean like she gets I, the things a princess gets, you know, but. I know, right? The diamonds and the tiaras and the, the, mm-hmm. the, yeah, the fine clothing. But like, I mean, Becky Ross's family, they could have really believed this. I told you I was, I went to high school with one of Aaron Burr's descendants. Did I tell you that? You did tell me that. Yeah, I'll but never like, forget it. To the, that's how I always remember Al, who Alexander Hamilton is because when we got to the duel <laughs> in class, this girl named Amanda raised her hand. She's like, actually, in our family, we tell it a different way. And I was like, who am I in class with? Oh, my God. What the fuck? <laughs> so her family, Aaron Burr's family, has a totally different uh, story about his relationship with Alexander Hamilton and the whole deal. Do you, you, do you wonder so, how they feel about the musical Hamilton? Oh, I Oh my God! When when I when that became big and I finally saw it, it was so great. I often mm-hmm. think about that. I was like, you know, because I remember when the play first came out. I was like Hamilton. I was like Alexander Hamilton. And again, that's who. That's how I was able to remember him because he's not really a significant kind of like figure unless you're like a real American historian. I mean, he's on a ten dollar yeah, bill. It's like most people look at it and you're like, who is this guy? I'm like, okay. Uh, but I always anyway, remember him. Right, yeah. because of a man, his his descendant, and she's like, so our teacher goes through the whole thing about the duel and you know, like the the broad strokes of what happened in history, and and she was like, actually, <laughs> our family we tell it a different way. So, so. here's what happened. Okay, <laughs> so this is what so I Betsy's found. family, you know, Betsy's family, and it's a good story. Alex she's like not the nice, old lady. Awesome. You know? Yeah, right. So, oh, my God, that's so funny. Although, like, Hamilton, I have to say, is so side note, nothing with anything, but what I love about the musical that everybody loves, and it's not that different from everybody else, but, like, you look at our forefathers, and you're like, wait a minute. Alexander Hamilton and John Lawrence both were against slavery. Alexander mm-hmm. Hamilton was kind of kicked out of the center because of we've all seen the musical or heard it, we know what. Mm-hmm. And John Lawrence died. It makes mm-hmm. me feel better about our forefathers because mm-hmm. we did have people and also makes me feel less inclined to be like, oh, it was just the time. Because, no, we had people right. that this was a yeah, terrible this is not idea. Good. Yeah. And if they were able to be around to fight it harder, they would have. Like, yeah. I mean, as Alexander was, but he was, you know, it's John Lord. 
slavery is so lucrative. I think people forget that. Like, you know, beyond the horrors of it, the yeah. people that it's inflicted upon, like, it's incredibly lucrative. And it really is. It's incredibly lucrative. Look at the uh, mm. opioid epidemic we're going through. This yeah. family, the Sacker yeah. family made, what did they say they made, $20 so billion? Dollars? Yeah, I mean, it's just, like, disgusting. It's they basically disgusting. are drug dealers. Like, they're just, they, they're like yeah. Pablo Escobar, right? Like, they want to, like, demonize Pablo Escobar. And I'm not saying that Pablo Escobar was a great guy, but I'm saying these people are just as bad as Pablo Escobar. But he ain't, but, but he ain't different. Yeah. Exactly. You know, getting people addicted to drugs is highly lucrative. <laughs> like, you make a lot of damn money from it, as we can see. Even if it mm-hmm. comes in pill form or powder form or, I don't know, weed form, whatever. I mean, you can watch Breaking so, Bad to see, like, how that you know, tortures your soul. I'm just saying. And so, you know, but yeah, there were always people, and that is a great thing when you do actually study American history. And I think, unfortunately, some people are afraid to study history because I think they, you know, people who are, you know, white people who are like, you know, automatically like uh, defensive about slavery. And it's like, because they're like, well, you're saying all of us are bad. And I'm like, no, I'm just saying it was, but don't deny that that's part of the fabric of America. But like you said, yeah. my favorite founding father, Benjamin Franklin, was another yeah, one. Yeah, right? Benjamin. This is not good, people. Like, why yeah. can't we he go was, through yeah. a system of indentured servitude like we started with, where people yeah. can have a what? pathway out of this thing? Like, do that. Well, this is and terrible. We yeah. That's, you and know, that's but then you had other people. I, well, then you had other people, the argument against it is that we need slave labor in order to, for this new democracy, this new country to thrive. Not, that was ultimately it what it came down to. My, that, that's the argument, and it drives me insane, and I find like our podcast yeah. so that I can bitch about it together, is that people want to separate it from the fabric of yeah. where our country is, and you absolutely cannot do that. Like, it's like, it's like, I don't know, I'm short, and I live my life being short, and I can't reach that. You can't, like, negate that from my experience. It's the dumbest comparison I know. No, I'm not like, yeah. People, but it it is what it is. Like, doesn't mean our country doesn't have potential to be great. But it's not just America. It's all of Europe, England. uh, What the European nations did was, was rape and pillage Africa in the New World to enrich uh, Europe. That's basically what they did. Yeah. Like, they sucked all the resources out of the New World and Africa and India <laughs> and tried yep. to do it in Asia. And, and like, don't get me it all wrong. Around. I love the... It's, I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's just like, I love me a trip to Europe. Please don't get me wrong. But let's not pretend Europe did not do this shit. You know? Yeah, like, and you know... It's like, I mean, the ship has sailed on certain things, right? The ship has sailed. So let's deal with the here and now. And it doesn't mean that we can't um, – most black people are pretty proud Americans. As you can see, you know, our our, our fighting to be to, – to, you know, take part in all of the, war, the, the wars that yeah. we had in this country. And – but all we've been asking, our ancestors have been asking, my ancestors have been asking is, to be able to fully take part in the American dream, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, you know, you know, the fact that they wouldn't even allow black soldiers to fight in World War One, they had to go to France. And France was like, we'll take you. <laughs> yep. Yep. They were like, we need a body. We'll take you. 
I mean, I'm totally going way, way off subject, but it's just like, I just feel like if we just tell those stories in history class from the very beginning, like my children learned about Martin Luther King at the age of five and six and how it wasn't fair and a lot of kids were not given the education that now our kids get and they, you know, and my teacher sent us an email, like it's a little bit of a sad day because the reality of the world, like this is a day where we shake off a little bit of their ignorance because we have to because we're making people. But like the truth is we teach them that some of your friends you wouldn't be allowed to be in class. And she said that the kids were like holding hands and like some were crying a little because they're that there would be a time and a place where they wouldn't be allowed to be friends. Like, you can teach this without them becoming yeah. people who don't like their country. You right. know what I'm saying? Right. It's, it's actually not Absolutely. even that hard. And so, and you know, but now we're better, and good thing we are better, and we were able to get better, and we can get even more better. Done. Proud it's, Americans. It's like Abraham Lincoln. Like what I was saying about Abraham Lincoln earlier. Abraham Lincoln did not believe that black people were equal. Abraham no, Lincoln he didn't. did believe he that slavery was wrong. And yeah. he, from a religious standpoint, he's like, men should not own other men, da da da. Like, yes. as a black person, you know, him not thinking black people is not equal, okay, that might be problematic, but I am sure enough glad, <laughs> I'm going to put on my southern accent, <laughs> I'm sure enough mm. glad that President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. So, mm. I should you be got happy. <laughs> about that and also one of the reasons that he, yeah. he signed it is because he's like this is a distraction from our um from our republic this is a distraction yeah let's get rid of this this tasteful stain on our history and he was right. trying to move beyond all of this so we can teach about the thing before lincoln and we can also teach about the you know um the the reality of who lincoln was without saying that Lincoln wasn't still a great president and a great man and was trying to do the best for the Union, uh, the exactly. both the North and the South. Yeah. So he did yeah. not want to go to war, you know. So um, they did not want to go to war. And so afterwards, he was like, well, how can we heal? That was a whole big thing. And then this fool comes and shoots him, and then that's a whole other thing. Um, so this extremist. Yeah comes and shoots him. And I love how the uh, John Wilkes Booth shoots him. He's like, yeah. And then he was surprised that people were mad that he shot the president. And he was like, but I'm I not know, like the president. It's like, uh, no, dude, you don't no. shoot the president. So, That's not a good you thing. Know, but, it's not going to help it. Yeah, so we can, yeah, we can teach all of this. And so, you know, get back to Betsy. I mean, her family, I wonder, though, if they really believe this or if it really was so, well, something. Okay. You know. So here's here's what happened. Ready? Full reality television. Okay. So there's research conducted by the National Museum of American History at the Smithsonian Institute in D.C. Um, the story of Betsy Ross making the first American flag for General Washington um, into American consciousness came about the time of the 1876 Centennial Celebrations. With the okay. Centennial Exposition was then to be was scheduled to be held in Philadelphia. So this is when her grandson, William J. Canby, presented what he's calling a research paper to the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, which he claimed that his grandmother, quote, had, quote, made with her hands the first flag, unquote, of the United States. So he says that he obtained this information from his aunt Clarissa, 
1857, 20 years after Betsy died. Problematic. Um, And candidates the historical episode based on Washington's journey to Philadelphia in the late spring of 1776, a year before the Second Continental Congress passed three, uh, the first flag act of June 14th of 1777. Definitely an act I've never learned about in school. Me Um, There is a book called The Star-Spangled Banner, The Making of American Icon. Um, The experts point out that his recounting recounting of the event appealed to patriotic Americans who were eager for stories about the revolution and its heroes and its heroines. And so Betsy Ross was promoted as a patriotic role model for young girls and a symbol of women's contribution in American history. So I guess they had to make shit up in order Mm. to share women's there, they didn't, though. There's plenty to do, but yeah. they thought, who can sew and has boobs? Let them look up to her. I'm, yeah. Um, so it turns out she was a flag maker. She was one mm-hmm. of several flag makers in Philadelphia. So mm. another flag maker was Rebecca Young, and she is historically documented to have made the earlier Grand Union flag of 1775 and 1776 with the, uh, it was like the British Union Jack and 13 alternating red and white stripes for the United Colonies, which I think we've all seen in a oh, history yeah. book at some point. Remember, like, the first? That was Rebecca yeah. Young. And her daughter made the flag of 15 stars and stripes in 1813, um, and she delivered uh did to the commander of the fort the year before the British uh, attack of, seven, of September 12th through the 14th, 1814. So this is during the War of 1812. The flag was, that flag was seen by Francis Scott Key, and that flag inspired him to write the Star-Spangled Banner. It wasn't like Betsy oh. Ross's flag, which we've all given her credit for. So Rebecca That's is from Baltimore, and Betsy okay. is from Philadelphia. Both cities look to claim their seamstresses. So oh. they think, and they both did, and it is totally possible that Betsy Ross was like, look, let's do five points, not six. It's quicker. Oh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a legitimate, like, you know, note. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Like, but it's like getting notes in your script or something. Like, exactly. Um, they, okay, and then... Scholars, however, and this is Wikipedia, tell me if I'm wrong, accept the claim by Francis Hopkinson, a man, who was a member of the Continental Congress, who designed most of the elements of the Great Seal of the United States, that he created the designs for the early American flag. So, yeah. Mm. I'm a little less inclined to believe that one. (laughs) I feel like it's Rebecca, I'll be honest, and like her daughter. Oh. And then yeah. Betsy was like, make it a five star. And then Betsy Ross's grandson was like, that's my grandma. And here we are. Yeah, so, and I also think yeah. Betsy Ross's, you know, descendants probably, like I said, I feel like it was a story that was handed down. Like you said, like, yeah. grandma was like, we're royalty and da da da. And like, there's a yeah. little kernel of like proof or, you know, or like one part of the family may have been well off or something. You know what I mean? And, and then it turns exactly. into like, we're royalty, you know? Like, you might we're have a rich great-uncle or great-aunt or something, you know? No, we were never rich. My mom has a theory that someone was clever, and so it, 
the king said, no, let that Jewish man advise me. And then, oh, that, that, yeah. That's, that's as close as perhaps we've gotten. Um, so they were at least probably the that didn't even happen. I don't even okay. think that really happened, but like, I, you know, that's a nice idea. <laughs> yeah, you never know. Like, I just know some of the stuff yeah. my grandmother told me. And then once I figured it out, I'm like, Grandma, I don't think that's right. Like, my black people, American black people love to be like, we got Indian in our blood. You know, I've said this before. And it's like, I'm like, no, I think that's European blood. I don't think that's Native American. I think it's, you know, because they, you know, there's that whole rape of black women thing that makes them uncomfortable. Right. So they just want to yeah. be like, oh, no, we, we're lighter and have straighter hair because of Indian blood. And you're like, no. Mm, no. <laughs> that's. Probably yeah. not what happened. Yeah. So they're like, no, I remember my grandmother looked like an Indian lady. She had two braids. And I'm like, no, I don't think. Yeah. So my grandmother swore we were like, I, you know what? Technically, I might have one Native American ancestor because I've done my thing. And like, okay. I might have one Native American. But, you know, to hear them tell it, we're like, you know, 30% Native American. It's like, no. You're basically not. Native American. Yeah. It's like, no, that's not. Mm-hmm. So, exactly. <laughs> um, so you um, be, yeah. I mean, Rebecca. Yeah, I mean, she she definitely continued her job. Like after her uh, third husband died, she continued working in her business. So she, you know, they that was her job. So people would be like, "Oh, we need more flags." She would make the flag. As did many seamstresses. Can we just give her a big up for having her own business? Yeah, we like, can. That's fucking because amazing. <laughs> she started it with her first husband and then through two more husbands kept it going and then they all died and then she still kept it going. So it's really she like she needed the man to start the business, yeah. but she made a living the whole time. And she took care of her So she's family. badass just not for the reasons they told us she's badass. Yeah, I mean, that that's enough. Like, for a woman in that time to start a business, but not only start to continue it, and take care of her children, you know, the world could change so much if women mm-hmm. just had more money. Oh, my God. You know, oh they don't want to pay women. They don't want to pay women no, what we really deserve because you know she was not getting paid so much Oh, my God. No. But the fact that she could make her own money at a time where women could not, you know, unless they were, you know, yeah. in their sex trade or, you know, uh, they had to inherit it from some man or marry it or something, you yeah. know. But she kept um, working. That's amazing. I admire her for that. I, You know, whether she made the flag or not, I mean, I admire her for that. Yeah, she's really, you know. She's interesting. And she, I'll just say, she died January 30th, 1836. 60 years after the Declaration of Independence at the age of 84. Wow, so this she lived a long, a long life. Wow. In a land with no antibiotics. I, I mean, my God. <laughs> she, had, she, she had all those children. I mean, this is a testament to, like, you know, because, you know, losing three husbands. Like, the stress of that alone, you know, whether you love them or not, I'm sure, I'm sure you have some affection for them. And then having the stress of being able to take care, having to take care of children, but then having this, this business. Sick. Yeah. Like. It's unbelievable. And, wow. They should be very, her descendants should be very, like, 
proud of her and proud. I'd be, you know, I'd be like, yeah, she made the flag. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be like that too. I would too. <laughs> I'd be like, that's my granny. <laughs> yeah, it is. Oh, I'm so glad. I, I thought you were going to tell me something awful about Betsy Ross. And I'd be like, no, no, no. no. It's just like drama. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm glad she wasn't like some. No, no. You know, going to like hangings and having cotton candy at hangings or something. But like the last girl, lady. she was a Quaker. The Quakers were like, let's not do slavery. Yeah. Yeah, Quakers are pretty, they're pretty dope. Yeah. Yeah. Quakers are pretty dope. Yeah, like they, throughout history. And so they were, they were, like we were just saying earlier, oh, excuse me, oh, <laughs> earlier, Bullet. Quakers were one of the ones that are like, no, this is not good, guys. Guys, guys, this is not good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, what are you doing? Wow. Yeah, That's are you very... really Christians? God does not approve. Because in the Bible. Um, and I'm looking at it. Yeah. It's just like, no. So. Yeah. The Quakers are like, can dudes, can we all just get along, you know? So. Yeah. Um, but uh, that's that's amazing, though. Yay, Betsy Ross. Yay. I know. Yay. Betsy Ross. We have some awesome ladies this week, right? Yeah, we do. Really interesting. We do. Yeah. So. Um, all right, guys. That wraps it up for another episode of Notorious Women Podcast. Guys, remember to follow us at NotoriousWMPod on Twitter and on Facebook. You can also find our email uh, at NotoriousWMPod at gmail.com. And our webpage is NotoriousWMPod.com, NotoriousWMPod.com. And you please leave us a review on um, Apple and iTunes. That would be please. great. Please, please, um, pretty please, 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 pretty please. Um, and Patreon. 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 That's my Oprah impression. Patreon. Mm. It's good. <laughs> I feel like I'm talking to Oprah right now. Oprah? <laughs> I wish. Hey, um, girl. <laughs> and you guys, if you want to become a patron and support our show, uh, meaning give us Monday, um, and donate to our show. You can do that for as little as a dollar a month. Um, but you can do like two dollars. We have different levels. You can do two dollars, five dollars, ten dollars, twenty dollars, or you can give us a one-time donation. And you can do that at Patreon.com/NotoriousWomen, and that's P-A-T-R-E-R-N dot com slash Notorious Women. And we That's will it, right? see you next week, guys. <laughs> awesome. All right, guys. We will see you next week. Bye. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.